the uh, uh, good news is uh, I'm going to uh, talk for a while. The bad news is I'm going to talk for a long while. Um, it's not a subject in which I can deal with quickly uh, and it's a subject that it's the context of it which creates most of our problems when we just come in and make simple bald statements. I'm also sure that it's a topic and a subject that you need to deal with. My experience is that all under 30s are now committed to the task of upholding the rights of gay people and that those who are under 30 and who are Christian tend to have the same view. That means that those of us who are going to be ministering to the next generation are going to be ministering in a form that is really swimming against the current and it's a deeply, profoundly emotional current as I hope to show you in part why. Now last year I worked through a series of sermons on the Bible's challenge to a dead world. Each sermon argued along the similar lines while looking at different issues of the world such as meaning, individualism, feminism, homosexuality etc. You can get it all of course on philipjensen.com, you can get all kinds of back sermons and back uh, essays and all kinds of things there including that series on that kind of topics. The argument of the Bible commences with creation that God has made everything out of nothing for his purpose and satisfaction that he's made humanity in his image as the ruler and carer for the world as his representatives. In this creation we find our meaning and purpose, we find our community, namely the unity of the family coming from reproductive sexual coupling of male and females and we find our fulfilment in Christ but that's another story for later. It's into this creation that sin and death come. Humanity chooses to rebel against God by choosing to rule the world by our own knowledge of good and evil rather than God's knowledge of good and evil. Yet this rebellion had the devastating effects that God warned us of, namely that we would die, living in a disordered world of pain, suffering the difficulty and immorality of this world. So humanity was driven out of the garden, away from the tree of the life, so that we would not eat of it and live forever. We became on that day dead. Our understanding of death must be formed by the Bible, not by the crematorium. We are already dead. We have the appearance of life but we are dead because the day in which we sinned we died. This life that we live is the life of death. The parallel I can think of and the illustration I can think of is that we are like cut flowers. Cut flowers look like they're alive. Cut flowers grow. Cut flowers bloom. They blossom. They show you their beauty but they're dead. It's only a matter of time and they'll wilt and fall and they stink because they are already dead. But when you look at them in the vase, they look beautiful. When I look at you, you look, well, never mind. Into this scene, we need to insert the culture and cultures of a dead world, for culture is the human response to the death sentence that we live under. We try to organise life as we know it outside of the garden in a way that makes sense to rebellious humanity, in a way that makes sense of the disordered world. There may be a variety of these cultures but they are all expressions of sinful rebellious humanity trying to make, make and remake the world in our own image, trying to make sense of the fallen world, trying to express our sinfulness in ways that are satisfactory to ourselves. 
Because we're humans made in the God's image, we can make sense of the world. But because we're humans fallen in our Father's image, we, the sense we make of the world only ever articulates our sin. Into this context we need to remember the Tower of Babel. For the diversity of our culture, our multiculturalism, is not only an expression of sin but it's also an expression of God's judgement into the world. So let me re- remind you of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. The Tower has several human aims. To reach the heavens, to make a name for humanity and to maintain the unity of humanity. And God observes in verse 6 of Genesis 11, Behold, they are one people and they all have one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. He made us to rule the world in his image and he has given us the ability to rule the world. And that is why he brings his judgment upon fallen man. And God's judgment was to confuse our languages, which is of course the very key and heart of our cultural understanding. To confuse our languages, to divide humanity and to disperse humanity across the world. The very reverse of the things we wanted. Our varied cultures from all over the world are expressions of the judgment of God preventing sinful humanity from ruling the world. Just as our varied attempts to unite the world into one culture, be it empires like Rome or Britain or America or be it politics like communism or Nazism, be it institutions like the United Nations or the Olympics, be it languages like Esperanto or or the web, all these kinds of attempts to unite the world are sinful attempts to reverse the judgement of God. They're human attempts at salvation and they are a rejection of God and his plans for salvation. For God's way of dealing with the dead world is Christ under judgment. He enters into the world, sinless though he was, and takes upon himself the condemnation we all deserve in order to deal with our sin. And more, he so completely deals with our condemnation that death can't contain him but he rises from the death and pours his spirit into our lives, bringing us new birth and eternal life, so that the dead are made alive again. And he commissions his people to proclaim salvation to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So Christians are in eternal life now, as humans are in death now. While we're still in this world that's rebellious and under judgment, while we're still here in this world of death, while we're still physically uh, failing, dying like cut flowers, while we're still living in human cultures that are trying to make sense of the senseless nature of death, we have come to life in Christ Jesus and sitting with him in the spiritual places, in the heavenly realms. Thus, this means that Christians are countercultural people. We're internationalists. Interculturalists, if you like. We're never really at home in the world's cultures, especially not in our birth culture, which means three things. It means living out God's new culture, it means witnessing to God's new deal and it means suffering the consequences of the opposition. Living out God's new culture, you see, we're no longer to live as the nations do. So you think of Ephesians 4, 
Verse 17, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. How do the Gentiles walk? In the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. There is the Bible's view on Gentile culture. Secondly, we're not to live that way anymore, but now we're witnessing to God's new deal. See, Jesus came to bear witness as he told Pilate in uh, John 18, 37, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And after his death and resurrection, he sent his spirit to his disciples that the spirit would bear witness and the disciples would bear witness. So John 15, 26, when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And no longer living the old culture but witnessing the new inevitably leads to suffering the consequences of opposition. Please notice the context of witnessing, martyria, is the context of conflict. For you never call a witness when everybody agrees on the evidence. You only call witnesses to the stand when the evidence is contested, when people are in opposition. Pilate dismisses Jesus with what is truth and sends him to his death. And the disciples are not to expect anything different. So the passage about witnessing in John 15 comes in the context of persecution. John 15:18 before it, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And then after the passage where the Holy Spirit is going to be a witness and they're going to be a witness. In chapter 16 we read, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you remember that I told them to you. Now, it's into this context that you and I are ministering the word of God to our own nation and city. With a dominant culture that in the past has been heavily influenced by Christianity but over the last 70 years has been turning its back on Christ and a plethora of other cultures that are now being assimilated into a new culture of ardent secularism and nationalistic jingoism. The multicultural phase of Australian development is only a phase whereby the government can manipulate people into the assimilation to the Anzac mythology. The key turning point was in the 1960s baby boomers revolution, of which I'm glad to say I was not one. Though I was there and not being one, I remember the 60s. And that baby boomers revolution was centred particularly on sex and even has been called 
the sexual revolution. The background to it, for it didn't happen without a long lead-up, can be found in the book we wrote some years ago called Pure Sex. There's a whole chapter there on the history of the sexual revolution. But I think my understanding has moved on since writing that book years ago, especially in the light of a book that I came across a couple of years ago, Simon Zretter and Kate Fisher, on sex before the sexual revolution, whereby I've seen the movement of the 20th and 21st century in terms in which some of you have seen me say already, that is, in the early 20th century, people became adults and one of the ways of being an adult was to start a family and therefore you sought marriage and because of that you then had sex and as a result of that you had children. But as the century moved on into the middle of the century, the idea of romance was told and taught by Hollywood and romance was to lead to marriage and then marriage to sex and then sex to children and then as a consequence you had a family. However, after the 60s, the romance turned straight to sex and de facto relationships whereby you then had children and if you're going to have children, then you got de jure married before your divorce. And then, of course, by the time the century finished, you don't bother with romance anymore, it's just pornography that leads to sex, which may lead to de facto relationships and then you have dogs because when you go overseas, you can put them down but they won't let you do that with children. Now, just for some light relief, I have one cartoon for you which we can now put up, which I kind of like. He's saying, how do, you, uh, how do we manage the 60-odd years of marriage? And the old people are saying, well, because we lived in that generation where you didn't throw things away, but when they broke, you tried to fix them. There has been a huge cultural shift through the 20th century, and it's particularly in this area. This change has been reflected in our own wedding ceremonies of the Anglican Church where the reason for marriage has been changed and muted as well as the vows made unisex where love has replaced faithfulness, relationship has replaced reproduction and so having children has become optional and having loving relationship is everything putting, I believe, quite unrealistic expectations for psychological fulfilment upon couples and paving the way for same-sex marriage in our own prayer books. But before we get to that topic of homosexuality, we need to understand more of how our Australian culture deals with our witnessing. For the Middle Eastern culture of persecution by physical violence hasn't yet come to Australia. Our opposition is still a mixture of a lot of deceitful seduction plus the milder forms of persecution such as social ostracism and censorship, while our opponents are limbering up for legal suppression in the coming days. You are younger men than I and younger women than I and can I assure you the 21st century problem for Australian Christianity will be church-state relationships. The day is coming, my friends. It is inevitably coming and it will come soon. In fact, this last week or so we've seen some of it, haven't we? Let's look at the subject then of censorship. We're already facing it. Let's look at it. We start again with Genesis 1 and the repeated chorus. Genesis 1, God said. It occurs nine times in Genesis 1 and we hear how God manufactured the universe, creating it without form and void, empty, and then 
breathtaking series of commandments we read, and God said, let there be, and there was. We're not told how the world was created by God's command, just that it was created by God's command. He spoke and it happened, which tells us about the world, tells us about God, tells us about God's word. It tells us about the world, that is, it's something other than God, something created rationally and intentionally by God. It tells us about God, that God is powerful, so powerful that he only has to speak and it happens. And it tells us something about God's word. It expresses his intention and is powerfully effective in accomplishing his purposes. This powerful word of God is addressed to man in Genesis chapter 2 where we read that the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Here the Lord's command promises and warns the man whom he has created in his image, whom he has appointed to be the gardener in paradise. But what is astonishing is the powerful created word of God is addressed to us. He relates to us by his speech. Throughout the scripture, the creative power of God's word is taught to us. You see in the Old Testament, in Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Or in John 1, 1, in the New Testament, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, he was in the beginning with God, all things were made with him and without him was not anything made that was made. Not only the creative power of God but also the sustaining, life-giving, maintaining power of God's word. So in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 8, man doesn't live by bread alone but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And in the New Testament, in Hebrews 1, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And God's word is very powerful and will achieve its purposes. So Isaiah 55, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And this is how God relates to us. By his powerful word, he talks to his people, by his prophets in particular. Some speak, others write, but it's God's word that they are bringing. For they say, thus says the Lord, as Paul speaks of the gospel word, which is at work in you who believe, in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. But it's not just the Lord's words that are powerful. Words themselves are powerful. Words have these two dimensions of truth and power. And God's words are both true and very powerful, but the power is not just in the truth, it's also in the words themselves. Human words have powers. The false prophet, the false witness can do incredibly damaging things. The human tongue is devastatingly powerful, As James reminds us, like a spark can set forth a forest blaze, like a rudder it can change the direction of the ship, like a bit it can move the horse and control him. And the devil's power is found in his words, for he murders by his lies that we are seduced into believing. 
We give him his power by believing his lies but the power he has over us is in the lies that he tells us for words are very powerful. Indeed so powerful are the words that in the 20th century people dispensed with truth, perfecting propaganda and analysing all words purely in terms of power. A whole new way of understanding words has developed whereby their meaning is irrelevant Only the power that they exercise matters. Our concern is the persuasive power of the speaker, not the meaning of his speech, let alone the truth of his speech. And at that point then we're back to the rhetoricians of ancient Greece, not concerned for substance but style, not concerned for fact but effect, not concerned for fairness but offensiveness. All speech is to be deconstructed as we discuss the power the speaker exercises over us rather than listen to what he means or evaluate whether he speaks the truth. So we read not the truth of God's word but of humanity's response and responding to his word. The positive response to God's word we see when people rejoice in God and rejoice that he has spoken to us. So Psalm 119, all of its 176 verses refer to the word of God, his laws, his precepts, his statutes, his commands and all of them rejoice in his word, desperately keen to learn and to keep what God says. The motto of scripture union you may remember comes from Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The basic responsive, uh, positive response to God's word is faith. Uh, not in the sense of superstitious gullibility or some super spiritual irrationality, but in the sense of trust. We trust God and so we trust his word is true. Relying upon it, accepting its wisdom, depending upon it, looking forward in hope to its promise being fulfilled, obeying its commandments and rejoicing in its good news. God's people trust God and so trust the truth of God's word and consequently experience the power of God's word with joy and satisfaction. But the world's response to God's word is the negative response of rebellion and sinfulness itself. Remember Genesis 3 and see how sin entered the world, bringing us to death that God promised and warned that man would happen. I assume you know the story of Genesis 3, 1-6, but let me just remind you of the six steps to death. First, he cast doubt on God. Did God actually say? And then she adds to God's word, neither shall you touch it. And then there's the denial of God's word, you will not surely die. And then the fourth one is the ascription to false power motives to God. God knows you'll be like God, he's only protecting his own patch. And fifthly, You see them buy the lie instead of hearing the truth. The woman saw the delights in the eyes, no longer listening to God's word, but seeing with her eyes the lie she believed, so that sixthly she shares the lie with her husband, bringing the whole of mankind into the sin. No longer, you see, is it uh, the sin of Eve, it's the sin of Adam, for he failed by listening, hearkening, trusting, obeying his wife instead of God. He listened to the human words spoken beside him rather than the divine words spoken above him. And so commences the Bible's description of how dead people try to avoid listening to the truth of God's word. 
Broadly speaking, in both Old Testaments and New Testaments, there are religious people who will not listen and irreligious people who will censor. The religious people, church people, will harden their hearts to God's word like the people in the wilderness who disobeyed God in Psalm 95 and Hebrews 3 and 4. Or we'll honour God with our lips while our hearts are far from him, which is Jesus' judgement on the Pharisees of his days in Mark chapter 7. You leave the commandments of God to hold to the traditions of men. Or we'll pretend to keep the word of God while constantly minimising its requirements and looking for loopholes to avoid its demands. Or we'll twist the scriptures to our own destruction, as it says in 2 Peter 3. Or we'll attract teachers to suit ourselves, as he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4. But the irreligious are not so hypocritical as us. They just want to censor God's word. They're not interested in its truth. They just want to stop its power. They just want to silence it and silence its preachers. So in Isaiah's day they said to the seers, do not see, to the prophets, do not prophesy. To us what is right, speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions, lead the way, turn aside from the path, let us no more hear of the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 30. And Jeremiah was threatened, do not prophesy in the name of the Lord or you will die by our hand. That's censorship. And the apostles were told not to preach the gospel. The council of Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, called them and charged them in Acts 4 not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And in Acts 5, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. Still others heard the word of God and despised it, the Athenians who scoffed at the idea of the resurrection, the Corinthian Greeks who thought the cross was foolish, and the Jews who thought the cross was weak and powerless. Today our dead world, having given up on the truth, still struggles with the power of words, trying to control the freedom and responsibility of speech. Communities protect themselves. Socially unacceptable, dangerous, seditious speech is not allowed. Offensive speech is not allowed. Divisive speech is not allowed. They use different forms of censorship to stop words and speech being spoken. There's the formal legal censorship of the government. See, Australia doesn't have an absolute freedom of speech. There are laws about defamation, slander and libel, restrictions about conveying images of pedophilia, laws against vilification and offensive language. We don't have a freedom of speech in this language, in this land. Then there's the tension between privacy and criminal cover-up. ICAC works at bringing out into the open the words that people wish to keep in silence and hidden. Then there's the censorship of the garbage that's all but failed now since the 1960s foolish idealism. See, pornography is readily available, continually growing, degenerating all, communication in its, degenerating all communication in its wake and becoming people are becoming increasingly desensitised to it. It's one of those issues we really have to deal with, brothers, not just for our own sisters, not just for our own lives, but by the age of 11, most children have found pornography on the internet, by the age of 11, and it is the basic teacher for young men on what women desire, which, when you look at any pornography, you will see is absolutely appalling. 
and to think that some people are complaining about the church teaching that uh, violence against women is perfectly uh, all right. I don't know any church that teaches that, but pornography teaches it every day to millions of young boys. That's the group that, anyway, there's the censorship and fail, but there is also the bullies, the groups that won't allow you to speak against them or even about them for fear you may weaken their power or undermine, somehow offend them. There's the homosexual lobby who won't allow real discussion of their behaviour, attacking all opposition as homophobia. They were able to censor even the great blessed secular saint, Fred Hollows. He had to back down because of them. Last year they forced the resignation of the CEO of Mozilla because six years before that he gave $1,000 to an anti-gay political referendum. He only lasted in his job three or four weeks because he was going to arouse opposition to the homosexual community. That's power of censorship. Or the abortion lobby who won't allow photographs of fetuses and who attack anybody who raised moral questions about the tens of thousands of abortions every year in Australia. Or the Muslim community who won't allow negative presentations of Muhammad or the Koran to be aired but threaten with physical violence all opponents. I remember speaking at Sydney University a few years ago and I mentioned Muhammad. The room, it was one of those castle lecture theatres if you know uh, Sydney University, the room was jam-packed with people sitting on the steps all the way down. Anyway, just by mention of Muhammad, one man right at the back with beard suddenly moved to the centre and walked all the way down the aisle and he stood just there opposite me for the rest of the talk staring me out. He was terrific. I would have him everywhere I could because from there on in the audience listened to every word. It was one of the best things. The only thing better is when people storm out. I had a man storm out at St Barney's once and as he stormed out he slammed the door which didn't actually work and bounced back. Uh, He was also good to have around but I lost touch with him. But you see you can't speak against Muhammad without the threat. In 2014 Brandeis University, one of the leading American universities, was forced to withdraw an honorary doctorate because the recipient had criticised Islam. Isn't that astonishing? And then there are the gatekeepers who consciously and unconsciously don't allow alternative viewpoints to be expressed. The mainstream media is about the mainstream, uh, the mainstream journalists' worldview. But alternative worldviews don't get any airing other than being reported and analysed negatively by the journalists. They consistently omit positive references to Christianity. They'll attack, ridicule and scorn Christianity but not Islam, of which they are afraid. They'll get bombed. Or homosexuality or feminism, of which they are seriously overrepresented. You see, a report report of science, when it points one way, they they will put on the front page. When new evidence comes out that points the other way, they don't like If it gets in the paper at all, it's a little paragraph of the 34th page. Every Christmas, every Easter, they discover something else that shows Christianity is not true. And four months later, they then find out actually that discovery wasn't right. But the publicity it got around Christmas and Easter is never matched by the publicity showing it was wrong later. 
These gatekeepers, now of course the education system which uses the right to establish curriculum standards, a right I would give it and acknowledge it, to dictate curriculum content for social engineering rather than educational reasons, forcing certain ideas to be learnt while omitting others. If you look at the history kind of... uh, Uh, the history curriculum that was put out a few years ago by the federal government, you'll notice that the Reformation is not discussed because the Reformation is divisive in the Australian community. We don't want our children divided. So we just leave out that part of history. It doesn't exist anymore in public education, you see. And so the curriculum standards have turned into the curriculum content which is a form of censorship. Now, of course, in this last week we've seen just how far this group will go in terms of uh, the uh, scripture teachers and and, uh, our special religious education. Um, I'm just having trouble opening the notes that I had here and each time I open them I touch them again and they close, which is what they're supposed to do. You see, what has taken place in this... uh, uh, removal of three books and the writing out to all the principles, you see, is extraordinary. It is censorship pure and simple, but it's extraordinary that the Department of Education believes so openly in censorship. You know, burning books are the kinds of things they've been arguing against for the last hundred years. Now suddenly they're into it. And furthermore, they've attacked special. The whole concept of the special religious education was we can't agree upon religion in this country. Therefore, we'll set up public education with everybody allowed to teach their own religion. That's the whole concept and that's being now undermined. It's a voluntary thing. If the parents don't like it, they can withdraw their children from it. It's completely voluntary and it's the education should be determined by the parents, not by the government according to the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights. And furthermore, are they making clear what's being taught in the, the, the PD courses that are being run? I don't think so. If parents knew some of the things that were being taught in schools these days, they'd be withdrawing their kids from those things. And furthermore, it's not specified. They haven't told us what the problem is with these three books. They've just, at a moment's notice, withdrawn these three books and they did it without any consultation to the provider. And they only picked on one provider, us, not on the Muslims, And the people who objected don't live in our state, they come from Victoria and when you get to know them you find out they don't believe in religious education anyway. And so they're trying to stop religious education in school. The whole thing is a political disaster. Uh, We do need to pray for our Archbishop and others as they go to contend with the government on this case because it is an absolute shocker but it is what you are to expect in the 21st century. Then, of course, there are the word twisters who insist on their words being used to describe reality. So, not mothering and fathering, you're not allowed to talk mothers and fathers anymore, parenting and childcare is the phrase. Not homosexuality debate, but gay rights. Uh, uh, Marriage equality, not homosexual marriage. Not marriage, of course, but relationships, because we don't want to make people who are not married feel second class. Not spouse husband or wife, you're not allowed to talk about them anymore, you've got to talk about partner or fiancé, that's all right. Uh, Not him but them, not Mrs, Miss uh, or Miss, you've got to only ever talk about Ms. See, we Christians, 
when we were in power, sadly made the same mistakes of using power to censor speech. Now it's being used against us because we're not in power. But when we were in power, we used the community power of legal imposition to have our way with laws on blasphemy, for example, and laws against public swearing and taking Jesus' name in vain. We prevented that happening when we were in power. We're no longer in power and Jesus' name is the one that can be used all the time but not Mohammed's. But Christian censorship is not wrong, it's just applied wrongly. It should be applied to ourselves, not others. It should be more concerned with truth than power. We know the power of words, so God commands, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And our speech must have the wholesome character. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. But there is a wrong self-censorship for Christians. We shouldn't self-censor the gospel out of our conversation. We shouldn't allow the fear of others to silence us about the Lord Jesus Christ. As Peter wrote, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honour Christ as Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. But today we are very often guilty of that wrong self-censorship, saying what is polite and appropriate in a godless and dead world will mean that we never mention God or Jesus or sin or judgment or hell or atonement or repentance or anything. Every Muslim taxi driver that I've been with evangelises me, raising the subject of God almost before I do. But Christians politely avoid the subject of God and are afraid to evangelise as if it is impolite, if not immoral, to proselytise. In fact, some even say we shouldn't proselytise. We're forgetting that God's word is powerful and we must be like Paul who was not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation. For the living word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. The Greek philosopher and debater may think that the word of the cross is foolish, the Jew may think that it's weak and powerless, but those of us who are being saved, we know that it is the wisdom of God and the power of God. Speak up therefore, my dear brothers and sisters. Don't be afraid, don't be ashamed. But when you speak of Jesus' death for our sins, when you speak of Jesus' resurrection, it's not your word only, but God's word which is being spoken. God's powerful, creative, life-giving word by which this world was created. The very powerful, life-giving word that can bring new life to a dead world. The world needs you to open your mouth and speak. We don't need to be concerned with the power of our words but more concerned with the truth by which we speak God's word. We're to silence false teachers by teaching the truth and exposing their errors just as Jesus silenced the Jerusalem opponents answering each of their objections and then posing some of his objections to them. And we read in Mark 12, after that no one did ask him any more questions. Paul wouldn't submit to the Jewish bullies who insisted on circumcision that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. 
And Paul even opposed Peter about eating with the Gentiles because he was not in step with the truth of the gospel. The truth matters to us. And when we express it, the power of God's word is in our mouth. Our task then is preaching the word of life in a world of death. Because it's God's word, it's what the world needs to hear. It's the message that brings life to a dead world. Because in a world of death, it's God's word and the world doesn't want to hear it, it's the message that the world has rejected and brought death. And so it's the world word that the world will seek to censor. Paul gave, us, gave his protege in 2 Timothy chapter 4 the great charge. It reflects the end of chapter 3. All scriptures breathe out and profitable for reproof, correction, training in righteousness that the man of God may be equipped, complete equipped for every good work. The man of God only occurs a couple of times in the New Testament. It's a common Old Testament phrase. It means God's leader. And then he goes on in chapter 4 verse 2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. The scriptures are given to us to use for these very purposes. The scriptures are God's profitable word to us. There we get all the equipment we need as God's leaders to teach, reprove, correct and train. So we're to preach the word and that is verse 2, in and out of season when it's convenient or not to us as much as to the hearer, doing what the word is good at, reproving, rebuking, exhorting and patiently teaching. And notice the other reason for Timothy to do it with such urgent patience because in verses 3 and 4 of that chapter the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This is our world, this is our time, this is our age, this is the world of death where we are. People gullibly believing any crazy idea while cynically rejecting God's word. We mustn't use force to persuade people but we, mustn't, we must persuade people by the prayerful proclamation of the truth. The first place is prayer and the second is to stop self-censorship and speak out the truth, renouncing error. Do it politely and with respect but don't worry about maintaining relationships at the cost of truth for that's the world's way of censoring you from ever speaking. Sometimes we spend so long building bridges that by the time we've built the bridge the earth has warmed, the sea has risen and where we built the bridge to is now drowned. Now with all that we turn our attention to the culture of homosexuality. We'll get there. Here I need to clarify my language just so that we can talk the same language. Homosexuality is having sexual relations with someone of the same sex as opposed to heterosexuality which is having sexual relations with someone of the opposite sex. And by gay I mean the culture that approves of homosexuality not that I think it's very gay in the old sense of light-hearted fun, but it's the culture of approval of homosexuality. The implication of an article I have written, and which there's a copy down here which will give you at the end, to stop you reading it now. 
the implication of the article is on identity. That is, the homosexual, the gay, are inadequate descriptions of a person's identity. Inclinations may lead, may feel, uh, inclinations you may feel don't define who you are. And sexual behaviour is only a small, though emotionally charged and often guilt-written part of who you are. But the whole of my existence is not defined, my identity as a person is not to be defined in my sexuality or my sexual practices. There's more to me than that. It starts off and it's come to me out of my ministry amongst alcoholics where the AA people keep on saying, I'm an alcoholic. They're not. They're a person who is addicted to alcohol. That's a different thing to saying, I am an alcoholic. Because as long as you keep saying, I'm an alcoholic, you're not going to be cured of your alcoholism because it becomes your identity. It becomes who you are. It becomes your your passion, your mission in life. You've got to free yourself from that. Though, of course, if you are drunk all the time, you are alcoholic. But that's not what you are. Therefore, this subject involves considerable personal pain. We live in a disordered world of death where under the judgment of God, pain and sorrow, suffering are unevenly distributed. The lives we live on earth are part of a bigger world whose plot is opposition to God and whose experience is that of death and dying. It's not my fault that my father is a drunkard or that my mother is a gambler. It's not my, they weren't by the way, it's not my fault that I'm born with poor eyesight. No, that's my brother. Or that I become deaf or disabled. It's not my fault that I was raised in poverty or in a society without justice at war with itself. It's not my fault if I cannot have children. The world is full of pain, full of sorrow, full of suffering. That's called death. And it's not your fault that you've got this thing as opposed to that thing as opposed to something else. We just get it. And part of that disordered and unhappy world is the suffering and unhappiness of the disordered sex lives. The misery of people's use and abuse of each other and of themselves. Having homosexual feelings or desires or attraction is often not a choice that people make for themselves. It's something they grow up with, not wanting for their future. It's not a choice that people want for their children generally. It's often a life of sadness, difficulty and distress commonly associated with depression. Crossing one of the fundamental taboos of humanity has often resulted in expressions of disgust, profound guilt and led to ostracism and worse. However, the arguments about homosexuality have been plagued not so much with personal pain that mean we have to talk carefully and loving and respectively but with public politics. Entering into the realm of public politics, using public relations and advertising means posturing and shouting with little reliable information resulting in much confusion. Sadly, the confusion is not caused by one side in the debate alone. As I've read about homosexuality in the last couple of years, I've come across claims and counterclaims from both sides of the debate that when I've checked out, have actually been wrong. 
They're exaggerated, misquoted, misunderstood each other, the scientific method, the statistical information and especially sampling methods. Recently one of our own, Steve Morrison, has produced this book, Born This Way, criticised by some as not pastoral enough. I feel the, the, the criticism is unfair. It's part just of that deconstructionist world we're in and it's not a book that's written for pastoral care. It's a book that's written in the public debate. You change language scope, you change the reference that you're talking about, well then you'll get a different feeling. What you preach publicly and how you deal with people personally is often and should be quite different in tone and character. This is a book that's been produced. It's it's a good book, it's a simple read. Um, But more than that, more importantly than that, I think it's a good book to hand on, to give. That is, there are many more technical books, there are many more complicated morning, but this one's a a book that having read it, uh, as I just have in this last week, I could feel confident in handing it on to a youth group or a a, a parish council discussion. That's not to say I agree with everything in it. He's got an interesting idea about talking about same-sex temptation, which I'm not sure I'm with yet, I'm not persuaded, for or against, but it's the kind of book that gives enough information for the, the youth fellowship leader, for the parish councillor, for the person who's struggling with people at their office saying, how can you be a Christian and be against gay marriage? Uh, it gives them the information that they need in a very readily digestible form. It talks about the way in which words are used. It talks about the science and the Bible and how the science and the Bible are actually in agreement, not in disagreement and so on. Now, there are many other books. There's been a serious and successful attempt to change society's view of the acceptability of homosexuality, culminating at the moment with an attempt to accept same-sex marriage as marriage. Now, can I say, you look, uh, you look historically and you look sociologically at the history of mankind and I am hard-pressed to think of any social revolution that has moved so far so quickly. From the 1990 when homosexuality is considered to be wrong by most people to 2015 when suddenly anybody who is against homosexuality is as immoral as those people who were for homosexuality 25 years ago. That is a social transformation of enormous size at enormous speed. Famously, it was all outlined in a, a book in America. That is, if you want to understand the history of the last 25 years, the history was written before it happened in this book called After the Ball. It, it's quite fascinating that everything that has happened in the last 25 years was written about before the last 25 years happened and it's in that book uh, by Kirk and Madsen. It came as a response to the AIDS crisis at the end of the 1980s. It was written in 1989. In its introduction we read, and I know some of this is in, uh, 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 there's a few pages about it in this as well, but let me give it to you this way. In its introduction we read, as cynical as it may seem, AIDS gives us, homosexual community, the gay community, a chance, however brief, to establish ourselves as a victimised minority legitimately deserving of America's special protection and care. The campaign we outline in this book though complex, depends centrally upon a program of unabashed propaganda 
firmly founded in long-established principles of psychology and advertising. It's an astonishing book to read, my brothers and sisters. The book is a program of silencing enemies, of desensitising the community to homosexuality, of jamming and converting people. It has pages of portfolio of pro-gay advertising which has its eight key principles. Now, I'm going to go through them. Some of these are easy and straightforward principles of any group wanting to get its message across and we could learn from them. One, communicate. Don't just express yourself. Instead of shouting out our message, we need to engage the community in ways that they will listen and accept. Or two, appeal to ambivalent sceptics. First people to win are those who are not opponents but the ambivalent, those of two minds. Or number seven, make gays look good. Uh, Of course you'd want to present yourself in the best possible light. But when you look a little closer you start to understand the message and method that has changed a culture making a taboo into a moral imperative in a single generation. Number three, keep talking. Desensitise, don't shock. Talk and desensitise, don't shock. Shut up about what you really do. And I quote from page 178. The public should not be shocked and repelled by premature exposure to homosexual behaviour itself. Instead, the imagery of sex per se should be downplayed and the issue of gay rights reduced as far as possible to, as possible to an abstract social question. So don't let the world know what you are doing sexually. It's like the abortion debate. Don't actually let people see what an abortion looks like. Don't let them see what a fetus looks like. In fact, there's a section in the book of nearly a 100 pages, about 25% of the book, outlining the totally unacceptable practices of the gay lifestyle that need to be changed and not advertised for they're so unacceptable that the campaign won't work if the community knows about them. That's some of the most disgusting reading you'll come across. Number four, keep the message single-minded. Gay rights. Rights, not freedoms. Freedom, you see, involves choice and choice implies morality and behaviour. Whereas rights involve no choice or behaviour but your existence, your legality. How to appeal to ambivalent sceptics, they say, point number six, give potential protectors a just cause. Make the ambivalent sceptics your protectors, appealing to them to fight for your rights in a cause therefore of justice, not morality. Now, I may say, friends, this is where I think our young people, our teenagers, are particularly prone and given into. They've been made the the arguers, the defenders, the promoters of justice because that's how it's been told to them. A key to get people active like this is outrage. Page 382. Few are motivated over the long haul by zeal or saintliness. The sustaining emotional steam that comes not from love but from rage. See why it's so attractive to young men. You need to rage. The immoral, not the immoral, the unjust persecution of this victim class. Rage is what you need. So, critical to the whole movement is number five, portray gays as victims, not aggressors. 
This has been done on many fronts, many of them fair and right. AIDS required shifting homosexuality from a chosen lifestyle, which is what they said up to the 1980s. AIDS was vigorously defended as a choice. But once AIDS came, that doesn't work anymore. And so now suddenly it's not a choice, it's, not, it, it's genetic determinism. The shift from one form of argument to the other was blatant, frankly. Legalities have to show the unfair legal implications, uh, visiting rights in hospital, inheritance rights. Bashings. Physical violence is never right. It's an abhorrent evil that shouldn't be overlooked. Bullying in the school, never acceptable for any reason. Youth suicide, which is a great horror that all right-minded people want to prevent. And so you, you portray the victim side of being gay. But to have victims, you need to have somebody to blame. And it was important, number eight, to make victimisers look bad. Now, who are the victimisers? Not those who bash them in the streets, they're not the victimisers. Not the families who abuse them, they're not the victimisers. Not the bullies in the schoolyard. The victimisers that you must demonise are the religious conservatives who want to say that homosexuality, homosexual activity is wrong, is immoral. They are the victimisers that must be made to look bad. I quote page 179, This entails publicising support by moderate churches and raising serious theological objections to conservative biblical teachings. Portraying such institutions as antiquated, backward, badly out of step with the times and with the latest findings of psychology. Against the tug of old-time religion, one must set up mightier pull of science and public opinion, the shield and sword of the accursed secular humanism. Such an unholy alliance has already worked well against churches on such topics as divorce and abortion. So my Bible-believing, loving for others and sisters, we will be portrayed as... Narrow-minded bigots, living in the past, denying the best of science, hating and fearful, homo-hating and homophobic. Yeah, well, that's true, isn't it? That's what we're presented as. That's exactly. But that was written 25 years ago. The history was written before the events because the whole of the program was sheer, crass propaganda. This campaign has led to a very conflicted culture. Debates and media blitzes have moved ambivalent sceptics to become the protectors and to change the law, to divide political parties, churches and denominations. The Anglican Communion has been split irreversibly by this issue. Confusion abounds. Marriages are recognised in the United Kingdom and New Zealand and are not recognised in Australia as the political agenda is forced upon one community one after another and will ultimately be forced upon our community for no other reason than, well, what do we do with those who are married elsewhere? But the conflict is deeper still because the evidence of science is not all one-sided and the morality issue will not go away, nor be simply swallowed up by legislation. You see, adultery is legal but yet it's not moral. And furthermore, though it's widely accepted, the homewrecker is the top of the list of unpopularity in the community. You ask people who do they hate the most, it's the homewrecker. 
The appeal to science has led to research in this area, the area of homosexuality, but the average citizen seeking to be informed is overwhelmed by claims and counterclaims. The political process of silencing all opposition is alive and well as journalists jump to publish findings from one side and then ignore it on the other side. And again, I'd commend to you this book. It actually gives you the details of when that kind of thing has happened. It talks of two studies by the same person, one in 1991, Bailey, one in 1991, the other in 2000. And the 1991 one was positive towards the idea of genetic background to homosexuality all over the newspapers. The one in 2000, he's changed his mind because it's not there, the evidence has now come in. It's not mentioned in the newspapers. We can't even get agreement as to how widespread homosexuality is in the land. The old Kinsey figure of 10% of males has been shown to be wrong, wrong sampling methods, but it is held on, to fan, fan, uh, it's held on fanatically by, for political reasons. Now any scientific finding that isn't written by gays is contested and rejected by the community. Only pro-gay science can be quoted as being evidence for the debate, as if gay scientists are unbiased while other scientists are biased. Yet even if we only listen to the pro-gay research for the case for biological determinism that makes homosexuality determined somehow by genes, it's not sustained by the evidence. David Benkoff is a Jewish gay academic and a freelance writer. He summed up the present state of knowledge of scholars of gay history and anthropology saying almost all pro-gay have decisively shown that gayness is a product of Western society originating about 150 years ago. He goes on, according to the experts on homosexuality across centuries and continents, being gay is a relatively recent social construction. Few scholars with advanced degrees in anthropology or history who concentrate on homosexuality believe gays have existed in any culture before or outside ours, much less in all cultures. He goes on, these professors work closely with an ever-growing body of knowledge that directly contradicts born that way ideology. It goes on, journalists trumpet every biological study that even hints that gayness and straightness may be hardwired but they show little interest in the abundant social research showing that sexual orientation cannot be innate. He is a leading gay academic whose academic studies are held above his gay commitments. See, it's fascinating to me that the feminists are arguing biology is not destiny, while the gays are arguing biology is destiny. They don't care, provided they can choose their destiny. But the gay gene has not been discovered yet and frankly it looks less and less likely to be discovered. Indeed, leading gay advocates have rejected the idea Peter Tatchell is an Australian but he's a leader of the United Kingdom gay movement and has been for many years. He writes, While genes and hormones predispose a person to a particular sexual orientation, they do not determine it. They are significant influences, not the sole cause. Other factors are also at work. Social expectation, cultural values and peer pressure, for instance, push us towards heterosexuality 
Without these prostrate influences, more people might be lesbian or gay or bisexual. Now that should be a terrifying comment for you. For then publicly accepting homosexuality according to Peter Tatchell will increase homosexuality. He goes on, Biological determinist thesis has another major flaw. If all were born either gay or straight, how do they explain people who switch in midlife from happy heterosexuality to happy homosexuality and vice versa? So there's two arguments. One, they're born that way. Two, you can't be changed. But the evidence is there's lots of people who have changed, who have given up this and taken on that. Um, I think Rob referred to you, that book with the, 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 the woman who's the academic lesbian in America with the incredible name. You know, good. He goes on, Much as I would love to go along with the emerging born gay consensus, I can't. The evidence doesn't support the idea that sexuality is a fixed biological given. Professor Dennis Altman is a professor here in Australia down at Monash University. He's a Sydney cider but he's gone to Melbourne and he's not persuaded that that homosexuality is genetic or innate. Again, I have a quote from him if I can get it up. He says, To be a Haitian or a haemophiliac is determined at birth. But being gay is an identity that is socially determined and involves personal choice. Even if, as many want to argue, one has no choice in experiencing homosexual desire, there is a wide choice of possible ways of acting out these feelings, from celibacy and denial to self-affirmation and the adoption of gay identity. Altman and Tatchell are two of the great leaders of the homosexual revolution of the 20th century in England and in Australia and they deny this genetic predetermination. The evidence for the gay agenda aren't as simple and as straightforward as being claimed. In 2013, a research paper from the Australian Institute for Suicide Research and Prevention reported that gay suicide is often related to stress in romantic relationships. The leader of this research team, Dr Delaney Skerritt, concluded, we tend to assume that the psychological distress LGBTI people are often going through is due to family rejection, but it seems that's not so much the case. The conflict seems to be largely related to relationship problems with partners. We're being snowed, brothers and sisters, with a propaganda program that we need to explain to our community for what it is. See, while we're being inundated with pro-gay politics, the Bible's challenge to homosexuality continues to stand. But we must understand it, not as narrow-minded, bigoted, hate-filled homophobics as we're presented to our culture, but as God's enlightened word for the benefit and good of all people. You see, go back to creation. Creation, God has created us in his image for his purpose and part of that creation is our sexual polarity. Male and female, he created us to multiply and fill the earth. Man and woman, he created us that we may leave our parents and be united as husband and wife. This is Jesus' view of humanity and of marriage. For he quoted all this in Matthew 19. 
Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they're no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Do not believe people who say Jesus never spoke against homosexual marriage. Jesus' view of marriage and humanity was the Bible's view. We are created heterosexual for marriage and for procreation. For the creation of the world is followed in Genesis 3 with sin and death. We can know the ideal that God has created. We can see from it how we should live. But sin means we no longer want to live God's way. And the judgment of death means we no longer find it easy to live God's way. For we now live in the disordered world where suffering isn't evenly distributed. And part of our sinfulness and the disordered nature of society is that we choose to use our sexuality in ways and for purposes other than God's creation. So throughout the Bible we see people committing adultery and fornication, incest, prostitution, rape, polygamy and yes, homosexuality. The awful events in Sodom before its destruction and the laws we read from Leviticus recount some of sinful humanity's ability to misuse God's created sexual pattern. And it's not only in the Old Testament, for both 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy lists homosexuality amongst the sinful practices that bring the judgment of God. Yet the passage we read from Romans 1:18 following gives an added explanation for homosexuality, for there we see that homosexuality is not simply sinful, but it's also part of the judgment of God on sinful humanity. But the passage commences with the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, what do we do? Suppress the truth. And this wrath of God against human preference for unrighteousness and suppression of the truth is seen in the threefold statement, verse 24, verse 26, verse 28, therefore God gave them up. That is, when we turn from God to do our own thing, God's judgment includes giving us our head, letting us go, letting us choose our own folly and destruction. We think we're being wise, enlightened, but we're being foolish. We choose to do the very things that will harm and destroy us and the expression of this is our choice to pervert our created order into homosexual practices. Though it's not only that, of course. The chapter ends, remember, verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malicious. They are gossip, slanderous, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but they give approval to those who practice them. That is, homosexuality is not the only sin which is an indication of the judgement of God and it's not the only activity that is sinful. Hating our parents, disobeying our parents, being boastful, being haughty, they're also sinful and an expression of the judgement of God in giving us over to our own things. But notice verse 32. People giving approval to those who practise sin. For here we see human culture entering into the picture of God's judgement of death. For our pundits will rationalise evil into good. They will justify our behaviour and approve of our sinfulness, explaining and demonstrating God's ways are not just or right, but sin is both right and just. The atheist, Marxist, academic Dennis Altman, the atheist, 
agrees with the atheist feminist politician Julia Gillard. What do they agree about? There's no point having gay marriage. That's what they agree about. Why? Well, there's no point getting married at all because marriage is an evil that needs to be avoided. That is why Julia Gillard would not support gay marriage because she doesn't believe in marriage. Feminists, you see, have obscured the heterosexual nature of our creation. Gays have ridden in on their culture coat-tails. One movement led inevitably to the other. Both reject God and our creation even though they contradict each other on biology leading to destiny because they choose the human knowledge of good and evil rather than God's knowledge of good and evil. Inevitably, the generation that accepts the ordination of women to the presbyterate, the next generation accepts the ordination of homosexuality. The homosexuals to practising homosexuals to the ordination of the presbyterate because the same argument for one can be used to the other. And if the logic and the argument and the exegesis is right of one, well the logic and the exegesis will be right for the other. It's an inevitable connection which you can see historically every time. That's why what we are to expect when we have people turn away from God. It's precisely what we've seen happened over the past 200 years or so in our culture. The culture decided to turn away from centering on God to centre on humanity and as a result has reinvented itself and its morality into the mess that we need to challenge. One such reinvention is precisely the one predicted by the Bible, namely that we would turn from the created order of men and women, united sexually, to reproduce one expanding humanity, into sensualists, using our sexuality for nothing but pleasure and so turning from its created pattern into homosexuality, adultery, fornication and incest. It's for this sinfulness and because of God's wrath that Christ came into the world to live and to die, the perfect sacrifice for our sins, to turn aside God's wrath upon us and to rise to pour out his spirit to transform us and give us the new birth. And so in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 following, we know this passage, do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither sexually immoral idolaters, adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The passage brings bad and, and bad and absolute news. No inheritance. And good and hopeful news. And such were some of you. Notice seven things from this passage. I'm coming up the home straight. One, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Two, don't be deceived. Three, unrighteous includes adultery and homosexuality. Four, such were some of you. Five, but you were washed. Six, but, I wish the translators put the but in every time, it's a really big loud but, but you were sanctified. Seven, but you were justified. The good news at the end is fantastic news. I read that passage before preaching against adultery in Cambridge University in 2004. I was reported to the Cambridge police and chased back here to Australia. The London Times trying to get copies of what I said and why I denounced. I didn't mention homosexuality. I did nothing but read that passage. 
I decided to preach on adultery on the grounds that most of the people there were tempted to adultery and according to the best statistics only 1 or 2% were being tempted to homosexuality. So why attack the 1 or 2% when you've got the 95% that are going to be tempted to adultery? So I really hoed into adultery. But because I read that passage, I was reported to the police for doing nothing other than repeating that passage. So we Christians have been reborn while we still live in this world of death. We're no longer the same as we used to be. We're no longer the same as those around us. But we know that this change is by the grace of God. So we don't look down on others who are still in bondage to death. We'll look down because this bondage is worse than the other bondage that we were relieved from. But rather we hold out to them the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. Furthermore, we know that we are still in this world of death and many of us, our old limitations are present with us still and we continue to live under the confused culture that denies our Lord and Saviour. So yes, we Christians can and do struggle with the disordered sexual nature, be it adultery or pornography or prostitution or homosexuality. My brothers and sisters, you are struggling. And there is no difference between your struggle and somebody else's struggle in that kind of area. And some of you don't struggle at all in that area. It's in gambling or telling lies or being haughty. But we struggle as sinners. And that's why it's so important, because we're in this struggle, that we hear that word. It occurs three times. And every time in a list of sins, Paul gives us the same word. Do not be deceived. Well, that's what our community is. And we are supposed to be the teachers of truth. So we must not be deceived.